Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we already sense how you are guiding and, and just superintending this whole service and leading us to this one theme of appreciating your grace in our Lord Jesus Christ and, and allowing that grace to impact us and, and transform our lives and flow through us in order to be this transforming agent in the life of others. And so as we continue to uh, learn, as we look to your word now, I pray, Father, that you would open up our hearts to accept the spoken word. I pray for myself that, that your word would be proclaimed with all clarity and authority because your word is authoritative. This is not just another book. This is a book that is written and spoken by you. And so as we open up our Bibles, we pray that we would look to you to speak and to teach us and in turn transform our hearts. We pray all these things for your glory alone in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, there is, is something in human nature that resists communal life and, and personal relationships. A human heart is inherently selfish. Independence and, and self-interest, they, they rule the course of our life. The ugly signs of such condition are detected very early. Uh, anyone with young kids or those who remember what it's like having young kids can testify to the obvious. Even a remote suggestion that your children share something with their siblings is an invitation to war. Now we do our best to, to control and we often dismiss these things hoping that as they grow up they will just grow out of it. Uh, so often such attitude is observed not only in our homes, but in our churches. Uh, we, we know from Scripture that the church is made up of, of redeemed sinners who become partakers or sharers of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now many of you who attend our regular Friday night Bible studies have gone through the book of Philippians, or right in the middle of going through the book of Philippians, the theme of which is our privilege in our partnership in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul there commanded the church, right, for, for standing with him on these front lines, praying for him, defending him, helping him out financially, all because they are sharers or partakers. They have received God's grace, and therefore they were privileged to be in this position. What often happens in our lives is that we become spectators as opposed to participants. Yes, we're, we're, we're very happy about the fact that we know the Lord, and the Lord knows us personally, but intentionally or otherwise, we, we show no diligence in active participation and partnership in the gospel, choosing to focus on ourselves and our, and our well-being. 
You know, Spurgeon once commented on, on this phenomena, said, he who boasts that he cares for nobody and nobody cares for him is the reverse of a Christian. For Jesus Christ enlarges the heart when he cleanses it. None so tender and sympathetic as our master. And if we are truly his disciples, the same mind will be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. The question that I want us to consider this morning is this. As recipients of this amazing grace, which not only saves us, but as Spurgeon says, enlarged our hearts, how should we then live? Both with believers and unbelievers. To, to answer this question, I want us to consider the great apostle Paul. Now, Paul, apart from Christ, is not great. Paul, before he met Christ, was not great. He became great when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that is when he was transformed. That is when he became large-hearted and became sympathetic. And our hope here this morning is that as we meet Jesus in his word, that our remaining self-interest will be repented of and that we will truly become agents of grace towards sinners and saints alike. Now, I want you to turn with me to this small little epistle, the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. It's right before Hebrews, tucked away there. And I want to quickly set up the story for us, give you the background, so that as we look at this epistle, we would just derive some truth here and learn for ourselves. Now, Philemon was a wealthy Christian. He happened to own slaves, or at least one slave named Onesimus. Uh, the church in Colossae probably gathered in his home, as we will soon find out. Um, he and Aphia, if you look at verse 2 and Aphia, probably his wife, but we cannot be dogmatic about that. They were faithful ministers in the church of Colossae. Sometime later, his slave Onesimus decided to run away. And as he was going away, he took something from Philemon. Whether it's some kind of possession, whether, whatever it is, we don't know, maybe a large sum of money. But he stole something from Philemon. And wanting to get as far as he could from his master Philemon, he decided to go all the way to Rome, which was about 1,200 miles from Colossae. And there in Rome, by the providence of God, this runaway slave meets Paul of all the people. And Paul naturally leads him to Christ. What else is new when it comes to Paul? And, and after finding out his backstory, after talking with Philemon, Paul sits down and writes this personal letter to his master Philemon, instructing and pleading with Philemon to receive this runaway slave back, to show him grace, to be merciful to this guy, not to do what other 
unbelieving masters would do or even believing masters would be pressured to do in that society. So as we go through this letter, we won't have time to look at every single verse. I will just focus on verses 4 through verse 20, and we'll pluck out some things for us, some implications for us to learn and to apply. Let's read verses 1 through 25, and we'll get into this epistle. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and, and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. And I pray that, here it is, the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Because, of the, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As we look at these verses, I want us to consider this thought. That as partners in the gospel, we have this incredible privilege and responsibility as agents of grace towards both sinners and saints. I don't know if Mike somehow got a hold of my notes, but basically what he prayed through is what we're going to go through. It's just amazing. But as partners in the gospel, 
We have an incredible privilege and responsibility to be agents of grace towards sinners and saints, both the saved and the unsaved. And I want us to especially consider two ways in which we're privileged to be agents of grace. Number one, as it relates to the unsaved, as agents of grace, work to see sinners be reconciled to God. As agents of grace, work, exhaust yourself to see sinners reconciled to God. And there are two ways how you do that, at least from this epistle. One way is this, by treating every circumstance as an opportunity to point to Jesus Christ. How do you work to see sinners reconciled to God? First thing is you treat every circumstance in your life as an opportunity to point to Jesus Christ. Now, as previously stated, the primary reason for Paul's letter here is the salvation of this runaway slave. If there was no slave, there would be no letter. If there was no repentance of this slave, there would be no letter to Philemon. How did this man, Onesimus, get saved? Where well, we find our answer in verse 10. Look at with me to verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. How did he become a Christian? Well, Paul gave birth to the brother. He birthed him to Christ. I have begotten him where? In prison. Five times here in the short epistle. Paul alludes to his imprisonment, specifically says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, I am prisoner of Christ, I am imprisoned, I am imprisoned, prisoner of Christ. He is in prison. And, and surely Paul, being in prison, had other business to take care of while in prison. And, and we would probably, by reading, we would understand Paul's preoccupation with other business. He had legal issues, we know, from Acts to attend to. He had people to see who were constantly coming into him. He had to write other letters. If you know Paul's imprisonment here in Rome, he wrote four letters, Philemon, and then three other letters, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. And so he was attending to all sorts of business. Yet, here's what we see in Paul's life. He doesn't just see life purely through horizontal lens. Paul doesn't interpret life and sees life purely through horizontal lens. In all of Paul's epistles, we don't see him complaining about his circumstances. We don't see him doubting God, why he is where he is. What we do see, however, is him sitting in the cell and seeing every opportunity, right, Every circumstance, an opportunity to preach the gospel. And so Paul here doesn't tell us how Onesimus got saved. How he ended up in the same prison. Perhaps being desperate in Rome, he remembered that his owner Philemon spoke about Paul. And being in Rome, he sought out Paul and met with him who preached him the gospel. Or maybe like a prodigal son who took a lot from his dad, went away into a foreign country. And after living luxuriously, he ran out of funds. And in order to maintain the same lifestyle, he decided to continue to steal. 
having been caught, maybe he was placed in the same prison. We can suppose, we can assume, but we simply don't know. But here's what we do know, and here's what we see this morning. The sovereign providence of God. How he takes some of the worst circumstances in our lives, and he changes and he transforms them for our good. Our gracious Lord often overrules sin for his glory and our good. We see it here. We see it in other places. Look at verse 15. Paul, in, in, in making the case for Philemon to receive this brother now, look what he says. Philemon, consider this. Maybe, perhaps, just maybe, he was separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as the same slave, but as a dear, beloved brother. Consider, just, just give it a thought. Maybe God is involved in all of these things. And if he's suggesting that to Philemon, Paul is living in light of God's sovereignty. God was pleased to turn Onesimus' crime into his conversion. Onesimus' sin resulted in his salvation. But let's note this very carefully. Paul is not saying that what Onesimus did was right. Absolutely not. Sin is sin no matter the outcome. You know, sometimes we commit some wrong and we're like, we're hoping that the outcome is good and then we justify doing the wrong for the result. You know, on this day when we remember the death of Christ as he was nailed to the cross, and as we consider his death, his death brought the greatest blessing to mankind we have ever known. Yet, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that he was nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. This was the greatest sin ever committed. What was the result? The result is all of us sitting here together worshiping God. But they're not excused. Do you remember in Genesis, Joseph the selling of Joseph to Egypt was means of the preservation of Israel and his sons in the providence of God. But his brothers had nothing to do with it and were guilty for selling his brother. What Onesimus did was evil. He ran away from his Christian master, who by all accounts, I mean, we look at Paul, we just read Paul's um, account of who Philemon was. I mean, this was an amazing guy. He was a believer. He was Christian. So by all accounts, he was taking good care of his slaves, of his servants. But what he did is he said, I'm done with you. I'm out. And by the way, I'm going to take something that does not belong to me. So from human perspective, Onesimus balked at the opportunity of being saved. If there was an opportunity for Onesimus saved, it was in Philemon's house. He had a Christian master. Isn't that how we oftentimes think about our circumstances? Our kids grow up in a Christian homes and we're saying, if they're going to get saved, they're going to be saved here. Some of you here this morning and looking at the crowd, I know that some of us are sitting here and are wondering if, if we've lost our kids completely. They're gone. They, they've abandoned your love, your care, 
for hopes of these earthly thrills. And, and you're wondering, you're sitting day in and day out, wondering if they're coming back. If somehow you can recover them and you continue to pray. You, you think that, man, okay, they, they've hit the rock bottom. They can't fall any lower. But suddenly you wake up at night and you find out, as they say, that the rock bottom has a basement. They've gone further down. Some of you spouses here are, are, are sitting and, and, and are abandoned by your spouse because they wanted to go to Rome. You're broken. You are completely unable to make sense of what's going on in your life. But you're here and you're hearing this message. And I hope that you will be encouraged. Certainly there are other situations in the group this size in our life where things are just bleak and, and they seem to be only getting worse. What do we do? You know, it may be that sovereignty is leading your children to Paul. And that Paul is not in your home. He may not even be in this church. He may be somewhere else in Rome. And we simply cannot predict God's providence in our lives. But what we can do is we can read Philemon. And we can read the account of Onesimus. And we can trust that as we continue to pray for our spouses, as we continue to pray for our kids, as we continue to pray for our leaders, God has it under control. And even though we do not see the end, God knows exactly how to bring it to glory. And I want you to, to know this. And I want you to be encouraged. In the case of Onesimus, and I'm not saying it's going to happen in every case, but in the case of Onesimus, God overruled sin. No one was able to touch him but Paul. In prison, in Rome, 1,200 miles away from home. God saw fit to appoint Paul as the one who would give birth to Onesimus. Not Philemon, not anyone else. Paul here, we see, was appointed to be an agent of grace through whom God would introduce Jesus to this runaway slave. Now, Paul saw life through this vertical lens, not simply horizontal, vertical lens. His belief in the sovereignty and the providence of God was not simply theoretical. It was practical. Onesimus is brought in, and Paul naturally, hey, tell me more. Who are you? Where you're from? Leads him to Jesus. Sees an opportunity to preach Christ. And the man is saved. As agents of grace, work to see sinners be reconciled to God by treating every circumstance as an opportunity to point to Jesus. I want to remind you also that God is sovereign in our day-to-day run-ins. Church, don't ever underestimate the accidental run-ins we have with people. Be it the DMV, where you're locked in at least for three hours if you want to get anything done. Or an occasional Uber ride that you catch to work or home. Maybe it's the kid at the park that you see for the first time. Maybe it's an auto accident that you were involved in last month. You just simply don't know. Any of these events can be sovereign appointments set up by God for God to use you as an agent of grace. 
Let us be perceptive to the working of God, seeing our life, not just horizontally, but vertically. Who is God bringing into my life so that I can minister to them? As agents of grace, work to see sinners be reconciled to God by seeing every opportunity, your life circumstances, an opportunity to preach and point people to Jesus. Number two, work to see sinners be reconciled to God, remembering that the gospel is the only means of real transformation. I appeal to you, verse 10, for my child, Anesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent them back in person that is sending my very heart, whom I, I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your free will. Verse 15 again, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as a brother, dear, beloved brother. Remember that the gospel is the only means of real transformation. Only God's grace can produce this actual change in the sinner. No gimmicks, no programs, no rehab centers. All of these things can be good in and of themselves. But if you want this change that Paul is talking about in Philemon, only the gospel of Jesus will do that. Because of Philemon's conversion, he became useful, Paul says. There's an interesting word, uh, play of words here. Onesimus means useful. His, his name means useful. Um, helpful. And so, and so Paul is saying that before he was a Christian, he was useless. He was not Onesimus, although he had the same title. He was Onesimus, but he didn't live up to his name. Now, because I birthed him, because he is now a believer, he is now useful both to you and to me. Because he became a believer, he now lives up to his name. Why? Because grace has been poured into his heart and transformed his character. He was useless. Now, check this out. Look what Paul says about him, that he's not only just a believer. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm saved. Everything is good now. All my, you know, debts are, are forgiven. But he says that he is now an assistant to Paul. This runaway slave, now because of God's grace in his heart, completely changed and transformed him, now he is a partaker now of this same grace, a, a participant in the gospel, and he is now encouraging Paul, and now he is serving Paul, and he's being very useful to Paul to the point that he's saying, I really don't want to send them back to Philemon because of how much I benefit from this guy. That, that, that's amazing. Because of his conversion, Onesimus is useful. Because of his conversion, Onesimus now, check this out, desires to go back and be reconciled to Philemon. Paul says, I am sending him back to you. Now, this desire to be reconciled to the one whom you offended is perhaps the greatest evidence of grace. It's this personal resolve to make restitution for the former things. If we have abandoned our obligation or, or taken what's not ours, the first instinct of grace in the heart is to make compensation in all ways within our power. 
And as soon as Onesimus believed, he desired to go back. And Paul is sending him now back to Philemon, ashamed as he is, but with a great desire and ambition and passion to go and repent before his master and be reconciled to him forever. You know, we, we simply, when we repent, we simply don't say, you know, God has forgiven us, therefore all is well. But, but to the degree that God has forgiven us, we try to make restitution and thereby prove the genuineness of our repentance. We're called to do something, so Philemon is willing to go. And check this out. He's willing to go back 1,200 miles to Colossae to be reconciled and pay for the losses which he incurred. But he's going back now no longer as a slave, but Paul says as a beloved brother. He's going back as a beloved brother, ready for his master to accept him. Church, what miracle the grace of God can perform. What else can thoroughly transform the heart separate from God's kindness towards sinner? You know, in Psalm 51, verse 10, when David is praying the prayer of his confession, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, unless you do this for me, it's not going to happen. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. In his promise of the new covenant, God tells Ezekiel, moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will not enroll you into a program. I will not have you jump through some hoops. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Paul later on in writing this sister epistle to Ephesians in chapter 4 verse 20, he thinks about this new covenant and he says, but, but you did not learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your, your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is what takes place when the gospel is preached to a dying sinner and he is transformed. That is why we, as agents of grace, as participants in the gospel, need to work on delivering this good news to anyone within our reach. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes to this church at the same time, and he says, And although you were alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, that's, that's this dude right here, Onesimus, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him wholly blameless and beyond reproach. This is what happened to this man. Why must we as agents of grace preach the gospel instead of resorting to other tactics? We, we find our answers all over the scripture. I'll just remind you one verse, Romans 1.16. We all know that verse. Paul says, I am not ashamed to speak the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to anyone who believes. It is the power of God. There's no way. Even, even as great and as powerful as Paul was, Paul knew his limitations. The only reason why I am successful, 
The only reason why Paul was who Paul was is because of his, what, reliance on the gospel. He preached the gospel. He says, I determined to come to you and preach nothing. In fact, I know nothing but, what, crucified Jesus, and I preach him because it's in the gospel that the power of God is demonstrated. The gospel releases God's energy to produce a permanent and lasting change. The gospel releases God's energy to produce a permanent and lasting change. As partners in the gospel, we have this incredible privilege and responsibility to act as agents of grace to those who are still perishing. But what about those who are here? What about, what about the saints? What about the saved? What, how do we now demonstrate our usefulness in the body how should our participation in the gospel impact our relationships here with one another? Now, Paul's job was not done when he birthed Onesimus. He now had another tall order, and that is to take Onesimus and to take Philemon and bring him together and say, brothers, work it out. Work on your relationship. You're a believer. You're a believer. Make it work. Make it work. How does he do that? Here's our second privilege. Number one, uh, second point, as agents of grace, work to see saints be reconciled to each other first by praying. First by praying for them. This is amazing. Paul is writing this letter, and, and here's what he says in verse 4. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of your faith, which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. So, so soon after greeting, greeting Philemon, Paul tells Philemon, listen, brother, I'm praying for you. Uh, I'm praying for you, and my prayer consists of two things. First of all, I, I'm thanking God for you, because I hear from your slave, and I hear from others who have come to me to share the circumstances in Colossae about two things, your love and your faith. Your love and your faith. Your faith towards the Lord Jesus, right? And your love towards all the saints. And by doing that, he's encouraging this brother to keep at it. He says, I thank God for you. You believe and love God, and you love those around you. And it's apparent. It's evident. Because verse 7 says, I have come to have much joy and comfort in you, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. I mean, this was a man, Philemon was a man. If you hung around him, you would be encouraged to keep fighting the fight of faith. You would be encouraged to keep trusting Jesus. Your heart would be refreshed. I mean, you've had those moments where you're down for whatever reason. You don't want to read. You don't want to pray. You don't want to trust God. You don't want to see his sovereignty. You're just right there. Tunnel vision, my problem, my issue. And frankly, I don't want to show up anywhere. And there, here comes a brother who sees that. And it takes special grace, right, for us to see each other struggling and, and, and being in that um, need. And, and he comes in and, and he speaks God's word to you. He just puts your, his hand around you and he encourages you. And he brings you up and says, you know what, I know it hurts. And even though I haven't gone through what you're going through right now, trust Jesus. And he just refreshes your soul to just 
Lift up your eyes just a little bit to trust Christ in that circumstance. There are people like that in this congregation. If they see it, they will come to you. And Paul says, Philippian or Philemon, I am so excited because you refresh other people. But, but, here's what he says in verse 6. And I pray, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. I, I'm making this request and I want you to know that I'm making this request. He says this. Uh, some commentators here, they conclude that this, uh, the fellowship of your faith or the sharing of your faith, as some of your translators have there, it refers to evangelism. Refers to evangelism. And, and just by looking at the rest of this letter, there's nothing here uh, about necessarily about evangelism. But what this phrase most likely refers to is that what we've been saying all along, Philemon's and our sharing of faith, right, is the fact that we are now believers. We have been given faith. We love Jesus. We are united by faith. And Paul says, here's what I pray for. I pray that the fellowship of your faith would be effective. He says, I thank God for you, brother. Thank God for you, Philemon. I'm praying so that as you continue to share and walk in faith, verse 6, that the sharing of your faith would be effective and it would lead you to know what to do in this situation. Like, here's your guy who ran away from you. And I know you're pressured maybe both within and without by the social construct of the whole slavery deal to maybe not let him go off so easy. Maybe treat him harshly. Maybe make him pay for what he did to you so that other slave owners around you, right, would, would know how to respond. But Paul is saying, uh, hold that thought. I want, I'm praying for you that since you are a believer and you have grace in you, that the sharing of faith would lead you, as you consider and pray hard about this situation, would lead you to act right, to make the right decision concerning your brother, Onesimus. I'm hoping that as you walk and act like a believer in Jesus Christ, that you should know what to do in this situation. I'm praying, very simply, that you would act like Jesus. Receive this brother back and reconcile to him. You know, as, as agents of grace, our efforts must begin and must be permeated with prayer. Even Paul, as big and as strong and as authoritative as Paul was, he prayed for God to work in the hearts of both Onesimus and Philemon. Number two. We work to see saints be reconciled to each other, not by praying only, but by appealing rather than commanding. This is huge. This is huge. Check it out in verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to tell you what to do, he says, to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. I rather appeal to you. You know, we, we know that Paul could have written another letter addressed to Philemon, and it could have been very short. Here's Onesimus, your runaway slave. He is now a Christian. Take him back. Signed, Paul. Could have. He says, I, I can. I have enough confidence in the Lord. I have enough power. He did that. He wrote these letters before. He wrote a letter to Galatians where he was very authoritative. He took on this commanding style and he says, you do this. 
and you do not associate with those who introduce another gospel, another form of the gospel. But, but here in this very personal letter, at least part of which is written by Paul in his own handwriting, we see Paul's wisdom, we see his love, we see his care. Rather than telling you what to do, Paul says, I'm going to appeal to you. This word appeal is the same exact word that we used to encourage to come alongside and to talk some sense into you. Not by commanding you what to do, but by saying, brother, hey, consider this. Think about this. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I want you to do it. Here's the brilliance and the wisdom of a loving leader. He doesn't just address the action. He goes deeper into the heart. You know, for us husbands, our parents, teachers, Bible study leaders, pastors, elders, if, if the primary way we lead those who are giving to our care is by telling them to do stuff, I think we seriously need to reconsider our strategy. I mean, don't, don't get it wrong. There are times, there are moments where we need to look in the eyes of our children and tell them, you know, trust me on this one. Follow along. Do what I say. But if that's our consistent way of leading, domineering and telling people what to do, will prove to be very ineffective. And we'll end up doing more damage than actually accomplished any good. You know, it works the same way in our home. It works the same way at work. If you're a manager, you can attest to that. And it works the same way in the church. If you want those who are taking care, those who you're taking care of to do something, you must spend time to get them to understand why it is that you want them to behave a certain way. And that's what Paul does. I, I want to encourage you. I want to tell you. I want to appeal to you. You know, it was Luther who said in the context of dealing with people, he says, a man is more easily drawn than pushed. A man is more easily drawn than pushed. So what is it that Paul was drawing out of Philemon? Paul wanted Philemon's forgiveness and acceptance of Onesimus to come from the heart, not grudgingly. He could have accepted him, but treat him harshly. He says, no, I want you to consider this. I want you to pray through this just as I am praying for you. You know, one commentator in, in, in discussing this topic, he says this, I, I've heard parents snap at their children and order them around like the family dog. Then they wonder why their kids aren't overwhelmed with warm feelings towards them as parents. Especially, quote, after I've done it all for you. End quote. It's better, he, he concludes, to appeal on the basis of love and save the commands for situations that, really, that have real serious consequences. As agents of grace who participate in the gospel, let us appeal to the heart of those we love in pursuit of genuine reconciliation. And Paul mo models that perfectly here. And finally, As agents of grace work to see saints be reconciled to each other by praying, by appealing, and lastly, by being willing to personally bear the cost. By being willing to personally bear the cost. Look, look at verse 17. 
If, if then you regard me a partner, again, a fellowshipper, a, a partaker of this grace, if you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. You know, he says, if Onesimus had stolen something from, Ane uh, from Philemon, and at this very moment has no way of paying it back, Paul is sympathetic to Onesimus. He says, I will take care of it. I will take his payment, and I will make it for him. He, he is willing to bear the troubles of Onesimus' sinful past. Paul is willing to bear the troubles of Onesimus' sinful past. If, if Philemon had trouble, and, and we know that from this epistle, he says, man, I have confidence that you won't. But if he had any trouble of forgiving his slave and wanted something back from him, Paul was willing to personally bear the cost. So important, check this out, so important was this point for Paul and so crucial was this that you know when Paul wrote letters, he dictated most of his letters. He had a secretary there who just wrote these letters for him. And this letter probably was no exception. But when it came to this point of saying, I will bear the cost, Philemon's cost, I will take care of it. He takes the pen from the secretary's hand and he says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I owe you. That's how crucial it was. I got this one. I am willing to personally bear the cost. Where did Paul learn to behave this way? Final passage I'll read. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes this, I, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. You think Paul had debts? Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul knew who he was. Paul knew who he had become. Paul knew who personally bore the cost for his sins. And he is putting himself under the pressure and the burden of another sinner and saying, I got this. You know, we just sang this uh, song at the end. He, referring to Christ, as though I, accursed and left alone, I as though he embraced and welcomed home. And I think this thought was constantly just like the thought of God's sovereignty and the thought of Paul constantly needing to be used by God to impact someone else with the gospel. The same thought that Christ paid my debt, how much can I step in? And when the brothers can't get along, help assist them. And be willing to pay that burden, to be willing to take that cost on myself. Why? Because of this. 
because of Jesus. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want us all to consider how we can give ourselves to this merciful work of reconciliation both towards saved and the unsaved. As partners in the gospel, we have this incredible privilege and responsibility to act as agents of grace. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are these vessels into whom your grace is continually poured. And if we were to cap that at the bottom, then, Father, we would see how useless we become in your body. But as we continue to experience your grace on a daily basis and look for opportunities to be used of you, both in the lives of our unbelieving friends and the believing family, Lord, we will see how Christ is exalted, how the church is built up, how unbelievers come in into this congregation, and our congregation grows because we are intent on sharing Jesus with others. Father, help us to never forget our title. We are agents of grace. We are called to this ministry of reconciliation. And we now prepare our hearts for communion, and we know, Father, that what we are reminded of today results directly in this communion table. It's what Christ did for us. So help us appreciating his grace, not to hoard it, not to look to our own interests, as Paul wrote to Philippians, but look to the cause of Jesus, cause of the kingdom, and all the more rejoice because we are being used by you. Father, I thank you. And I praise, pray to that end. Amen.